We're so glad you guys are here, uh, and we know it's a busy weekend. A lot of people late, travel, all that stuff, but you took time to be here, and we're grateful for that. If you're new again, uh, just we're thankful that you guys are here. Stop by the welcome desk. We have a free gift for you, uh, even if we never see you again, even if you hate it. It's a cup of coffee and a nice mug, so stop by and get it. We'd love to uh, talk to you more about Journey as well. Also, one quick other announcement. Um, we have a mission... There it goes. It was, it was bound to ha- I'm not going to touch it again. We're good. All right. So we had the first five minutes of the last service was that for five minutes, and it was awful. And so, uh, so uh, mission trip, Western Kentucky, uh, that's coming up next Monday. It's a five-day trip. I realize that's short notice, and a lot of you guys won't be able to do that. But if you want to go down just for a day, uh, I know a lot of workplaces will offer where they'll even cover your uh, pay for that day to go volunteer somewhere. And so we're continuing to partner with Western Kentucky. Uh, a lot of people, you know, lives are still kind of being rebuilt from the tornadoes that went through there a couple years ago. And so we've entered a kind of a long-term partnership with them down there. And we'd love you if you can't make this trip uh, to talk about other trips in the future you guys can go on. So we are starting a new series this week that's going to kind of take us into October. Uh, and this is right now in the middle of my favorite, the beginning of my favorite season. A uh, couple reasons. Football is back, right? And we can all be happy today. Uh, did IU win or you lose? Did they, they lose? Nobody cares about you. Okay, so nobody cares about you. Uh, but the other teams won, and so we can all be a little bit happy right now. And so, uh, but my favorite thing about fall is the weather. Um, I love warm weather, but I love a nice, cool night. Uh, and, you know, this is, I'm a runner, and so this is like the best season for running. Um, but what I love most about a nice, cool fall night is I love building a fire. Uh, it is one of my favorite things. Uh, a couple years ago, we got a solo stove. I don't know if you guys know about these things, but it is a smokeless, smokeless fire. It's not your fault, Rebecca. You're doing great. It's your first week on the soundboard, and we have, I have so many issues. All right, so um, I'm not going to touch it again. So uh, solo stove, uh, smokeless fire pit. And what I love setting around a fire is just setting around the fire all of the memories that come back. We're good, Natalie. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna power through it. All right, they're all checking on me because they know how much it stresses me out when my mic doesn't work. So, uh, so uh, we we're doing we're on these camping trips. Or where was I talking about? Setting around a fire, memories come flooding back. And uh, so one of my favorite memories, I still remember this. I was a little kid. I don't even know how old I was. Uh, we went camping down at Green River with my grandparents. They had a boat down there at Holmes Bend Dock, and we'd stay at the campground. And uh, we were kids, and I remember. Uh, just going out there. I remember we, somebody had the bright idea to throw some fireworks into the fire. Um, and it was like those jumping jacks. And I remember that it jumped out of the fire and uh, it caught our air mattress on fire. And so uh, we all slept in the back of their old station wagon that night. Um, I love, I, when I was in college, I would go out to the Red River Gorge and just spend weeks out there uh, with some friends of mine, some buddies of mine from college, and we'd go backpacking and hiking and just sitting around a fire and making all those memories. And every time I feel like I sit around a fire, new memories are made. Uh, It's a great time, stories, laughs. Um, For me, sitting around a fire, especially when it kind of gets towards the end and you're just kind of sitting there, just moments of reflection and just thinking about it. And I don't know if you guys love fires and if I'm just rambling on for too long, but uh, it's just something about it. But whenever you build a fire... There always comes a point in the evening when the flames are starting to die down and all that's left is kind of those glowing embers. And you got a choice to make. You know, do we add more wood? Do we add more fuel? Or do we kind of let it burn out and this is the end of our evening? It's always like a sad moment when you start to see the flame start to go out and all that are left are the embers of what remains of that night and that evening and that fire. 
Now, when I was thinking about this and, and kind of working on this sermon series, um, I was thinking about like this idea that there's this moment for me when the fire's starting to go out, when it's kind of sad and I don't want it to end, but sometimes, and then I started thinking about life and that how sometimes we go through seasons of life where it once was exciting, like it once was this big fire, it once was all of this optimism, great memories, and then just like a fire evening, there ends up coming a point where it's just the ember sometimes. And you're hoping those embers can get you through life, get you through whatever you're facing. And the question is, what do you do in those seasons where what once burned bright when it comes to faith and your life maybe feels like all of a sudden in this season, like it's just barely holding on? And where do you turn to kind of stoke the flames to kind of help get you through it? And so when it comes to faith, like for some of us, we might be in a season where it feels like it, it's fading at times. Or maybe like this expression like that your face not filled with fire, but your faith feels like it's under fire. Like because of whatever you're facing or you know you're about to face, it seems like your faith is under fire. And so what do we do? So this week is all going to be kind of introduction over the next several weeks where we're going. Um, and, and we're going to be talking about these different elements of what this looks like over the next month. Now today, to kind of start where we're going today, I need to introduce you to a term an idea, uh, and you've maybe heard this before, like if you watch the news or you've read about this, but the idea is about someone who is an exile. An exile is basically someone that's either been forcibly or chosen to be removed from their home, their country of origin, and placed somewhere else, somewhere unfamiliar, maybe even somewhere uncomfortable. For many, the exile is going from like your homeland to what now feels like a foreign land, but it's also become part of your journey. And, and, and so um, maybe for some of us, when we hear that term exile, um, we relate to it in this sense, that we're in a season of life or a place in life or whatever we're going with where it feels like we might be kind of in a foreign place, where we don't feel like we're at home anymore. Maybe because of the situations you're facing, it feels like your life seems unrecognizable right now. When we think about being home, we think of the comforts of home. That's an expression we use. And people that are in exile don't have the comforts at home. But the term exile is a term that's used over and over again. In fact, it's a narrative and a pattern narrative that we see in the Old Testament going into the New Testament. And it's this story that takes place over and over again about these people being in exile. And so maybe you're at a period of your life where when it comes to your faith, it feels like a season of exile. And that once was comfortable and felt like home, now feels distant. Or maybe it feels unfamiliar to you. Maybe it feels like all that's left of this faith is just some of the embers. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about or don't relate to that, just wait. There will come seasons of life where you feel that. So to kind of tell today's story and kind of open it, um, we had to start with a little bit of history, which I know some of you hate and some of you love, and so we'll balance it as best as we can. Um, but it's important to understand the history when we see some of these stories, because what's going on with this story is it's a famous story. In fact, most people will be familiar with the story, even if you've barely spent any time in church. Um, but the history behind the story sets it up to kind of the importance of what happens. And so about 20 years before this story takes place, um, we're, we're going to be introduced to a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's a weird, weird name, King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but King Nebuchadnezzar, you may not know much about, but is actually a really interesting person in history. 
Uh, he is considered the great king of Babylon. And Babylon was one of the first kind of nations to really have this idea of starting to like conquer the world and try to rule the world. And he was one of the first leaders to do this. Now, there have been other people that kind of talked about this and tried, but he actually attempted it. And eventually he's successful in taking over most of the Middle East, including like Egypt and places, which is a lot of the known, in fact, most of the known world at that period of time. Now, when he does this, uh, he gets a reputation as this great king, this great warrior, this great conqueror. Um, but he even gets a nickname. And his nickname is the king of the universe, which is going to make you modest, right? When people refer to you as the king of the universe, right? And, and so in his initial conquest, uh, he goes into Jerusalem, Israel, and he conquers it, just like he does these other places. But he actually spares Israel for a time. And so for a period of time, they're under this Babylonian rule, but for the most part, life is pretty much kind of the way it's always been. And one of the things Nebuchadnezzar w- would do that was pretty in- smart for, for a guy um, was that whenever he would go into a region um, and he would take over these regions, he would take back the nation's elite citizens, the brightest, the richest, the smartest, and he would kind of take them and bring them back to Babylon to now sit on his councils. So not only is he getting the wisdom and the wealth and the resources of whatever's in Babylon, he's now going to other countries and collecting the smartest and the brightest people and bringing them back to serve under him. Now, four of the people that get kind of brought back in this exile period back to Babylon are four somewhat familiar names to some of us. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then Daniel, right? And I don't know how Daniel got snuck in there, but like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are some weird names, right? And then there's Daniel, okay? So uh, this is the story of these guys. And so um, this goes on for about 20 years where he is kind of ruling this area, ruling a lot of the known world. These people are in exile, so they're kind of unfamiliar to what's going on. But eventually the, the Israelites, they keep kind of having these issues with Nebuchadnezzar. It eventually sets him off. So now he goes back to Jerusalem and he sacks the entire city. He doesn't say you're just not going to be in exile. Like This is going to be completely different. He sacks the entire city. He destroys the temple itself. Now, for most of us, we don't understand how big of a deal that this was. Um, But everything for a Jewish person is centered around the temple. Their whole way of life and understanding is centered around the temple. And this is the destruction of that center point. And here's why this is such a big deal, is every story that comes after this, in fact, even some of the stories that happened before it, are going to be retold from the narrative of the temple being destroyed. In fact, maybe you've never studied this, but there's called First Temple and Second Temple Writings. And Second Temple Writings is after the temple is destroyed, they're having to go back and kind of re-understand their history to this point. And in fact, your Bible looks dramatically differently after this event, especially in the Old Testament, than it would have before this event. So this is a huge deal in their history. So he destroys the temple. He basically destroys everything that brings them around and centers them around who they are. But before he destroys it, he has this really brilliant idea. Like, let's not just destroy it. Let's take all of the resources. So all of the gold, all of the valuables, and he loots it. And one of the things from history we understand is that, you know, in their world, if you had a god, you'd build these giant idols, these giant statues, these giant things. Well, when he gets into what's considered the Holy of Holies, which is like the highest place, um, all he discovers is just like a box. And it's kind of like a letdown to him because he was like expecting this. He's heard all about this god. 
And yet all there is is this box. And the reason there wasn't giant statues and all this stuff is because for the Jewish people, the presence of God is what mattered, not just the idea and the images and the idols. So all of that sets up for what's going to happen next. All right. So from the Jewish perspective, so from Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story is real simple. Okay. They have, because of choices that they've made as the people, they've in some ways broken the covenant that they've had with God that made them God's people. And so basically God puts them as a nation in time out. And so they're exiled in this period of time because they've broken the covenant. Now, that's how they understood these events and they write about it. But King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't see it this way. The way King Nebuchadnezzar sees it is very simple. His God, Marduk, was clearly more powerful than the Jewish God, Yahweh, and Israel's God had lost and they had won. That's the way they saw the world. We go in, we conquer you, our gods are better, we're more powerful, your gods are lesser, we take you out. Now, all of this is the backdrop for what takes place in the book of Daniel. Now, it's been about 20 years since this Babylonian um, kind of put these people and taken these people. So they've been in exile for 20 years. And Daniel has become a trusted advisor to King Babylon. Now, the way that he does that is in Daniel chapter 2, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams. In fact, he's going to have a bunch of these dreams along the way in the story, and Daniel's going to interpret them. So one of Daniel's gifts was that he could interpret people's dreams. Okay. Now, I don't remember a lot of my dreams, okay? Um, but I do know that my wife wakes up very often mad at me for dreams that she's had. So Daniel would have been very helpful in our marriage sometimes, okay? So Daniel could interpret dreams and tell you what he means. So King Nebuchadnezzar has this really, really kind of um, weird dream, and he's looking for people to be able to interpret it. Nobody can interpret it. And then Daniel finally comes along and interprets it. And so Nebuchadnezzar is grateful. In fact, listen to what he says. He said, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods. Now remember the context of this book is that Marduk is the all-powerful God. That's the way that that Nebuchadnezzar views the world. But now all of a sudden, because God's done something for him, he's starting to kind of have this softened heart. He is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery of what this dream means. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished him with many gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. All right, so the setting is that now they're in his favor. He's taking care of them. And there's like this moment where he starts, he even says like, your God is the God of gods and all this stuff. Now, the problem with Nebuchadnezzar is the problem all of us have is he has a very short-term memory, okay? Because if you literally turn the page on your Bible, here's what happened next, all right? King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, okay? So if you guys don't understand the world of cubits, um, that's about 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, Most scholars think that this idol that he creates, the statue that he creates, looked very similar to King Nebuchadnezzar, all right? So he's modest, okay? And so he creates a 90-foot statue basically of himself, all right? Now, there's some issues here because this becomes an idol, and we're going to see in a second that people are supposed to worship. So not only did he build this idol, but here's what he decrees. 
So he goes to the satraps, which are like um, governors in the Assyrian kingdom, uh, prefects, which would be like a magistrate, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of so basically it's everybody that has any say, all of the politicians, all of the rulers. He gets them together and he assembles them and it does this for this dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. And then he gets a herald, so like someone that's going to voice this to everybody, and it does this. Nations and people of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, which nobody knows, okay, what it is, except for our sound person in the back, she's a music teacher, all right, she's cheating, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Again, he's pretty modest, all right? So anytime you hear these musical instruments, and we're going to randomly play these musical instruments, everybody that hears it has to bow down and worship. Now, the reason that this is such a big deal is because, see, a long time before this, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, a covenant got cut between God and their people. And part of that covenant was that when God brings them out of their first exile, which was in Egypt... He gives them these kind of ideas, these kind of, um, they've got a bad rap. We refer to them as the rules or the commandments. That's not how they would have originally been interpreted. Um, But he gives them these 10 kind of ideas. And it's a better way to understand God, but also understand each other. And the top two in these kind of lists, this top two of this 10, is that you shall not have any other gods before me, and you shall not worship these graven images, these idols. So now all of a sudden, they're in a situation where the most powerful man in the world, who's actually been pretty good to them at this point, is telling them that they have to bow down. All right? And then it says this, if you don't do that, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Because he's reasonable. You know, don't bow down, fiery furnace, like that, okay? All right, so this guy clearly has some issues, um, but he's the most powerful man in the world, so what are you going to do at this point? Now, The reason that idol worship is such a big deal, and we don't always understand this, is um, in the United States, no one, let's just be honest, I know what Twitter says and stuff, but no one is going to command you to fall down to statues. Like, we just don't do that. It's just not going to happen, okay? And and the reality is, and there's all kinds of people with different opinions, but for the most part, compared to the rest of the world, you still have a lot of choices in the things that you're going to worship, especially when it comes to religion, all right? But then there's this idea of idols. So none of us are going to be told we have to bow down to idols. But there's still idols today. We just call them by different names. In fact, many of us, if we're honest, we still bow down to idols all the time. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, um, he describes what an idol is in case you're confused about what we're talking about. Here's what he says. Here's an idol. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give to give you what only can God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel it significant and secure. And so what he says is an idol is anything that you put in the place of God, who we believe created and sustains all things, that you chase after more than you should God himself. And so the reality is we still have the temptation to bow down to idols. We just call them different names. 
For example, in this story in particular, this graven image, this idol that, that Nebuchadnezzar creates, um, for him, his idol is control and power. And so he creates this giant idol that he makes everybody fall down to. And here's the thing. Some of us, we chase after control and power. That's our idol. We feel like if we have control and power, then everything's good. If we have control and power and people just listen to what we have to say, then everything would be all right. Or for the officials that are there, their issue is they like the comfort of the life that's being created through Nebuchadnezzar. And so for them, their idol is comfort. Comfort can become an idol. Like if that's the thing that you seek the most is comfort and you're willing to do things you know you shouldn't do or support in order to remain comfortable, that can become an idol. For the Chaldeans, we're going to be introduced here in a second, for them, they just want to fit in. They, they just want to fit in with everybody else and be accepted and cool and whatever. And so that can become an idol. And so we all have idols and they have a choice, just like we have a choice, what we're going to bow down to and put such importance into our life. All right. And, and so they're standing here and they have a choice to make. And so uh, this music starts to play. I know, don't touch it. I know, but it, it's, it's on my back in a weird position. All right, so while everyone else fell down when they hear the music, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up. They refused to bow down to this idol. Now, this causes quite a scene. In fact, it causes such a scene that the Bible tells us that some of the astrologers that are Chaldeans uh, will refer to them as the tattletales. Um, they come forward and, and they go to King Nebuchadnezzar and they say this. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. I mean, you can just hear the sucking up right there, can't you? Like, your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Okay, so we're all on the same page. But, King, you need to know, there are some Jews, we're not going to point in their direction, who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Specifically, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And now the tension point's been created. Now the king knows. And what we know from this story is that the King Nebuchadnezzar actually really likes these guys. But, but if he allows them to get away with it, because his idol is power and control, then what will everybody else try to do? And if he lets enough people get away with it, all of a sudden that, that, that hoping of power and control, it starts to slip away. So furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he gathers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he basically tells them, here's what's going to happen. All right, so in verse 15, it says this. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. So next time you hear the music, I understand what happened. Maybe your knees were hurting that day. Maybe you, you couldn't hear well. All right, but just next time you bow down, we're good. We can keep moving forward. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then here's the question. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? 
So here's the question. What would you do? I mean, it actually seems simple, right? So the most powerful man in the world is standing behind you, in front of you. And all he's asking is next time you hear the music, just bow down. Like, we won't make a big deal about it. Like, everybody else is bowing down. So, like, you just bow down ahead, you know, like, just, come on, let's just make it easy. Just bow down. I mean, it seems very simple. All you have to do is bow down. And what happens next is, is truly remarkable. And I have to believe that before they spoke, that, that maybe for a second there was a still small voice that kind of in the back of their mind started to replay. See, right before this story takes place, there's this prophet that comes on the scene. His name is Isaiah. And Isaiah kind of tells the people about all of the things that's going to happen. He prophesies about this exile and all kinds of stuff. Now, in the middle of this, this prophecy that Isaiah gives about what's going to happen, and that's all that a prophecy is. We, we get mixed up. All a prophet is is someone that can look at something and say, hey, this is going to happen if we don't change course. So in, in the middle of this prophecy, here's what Isaiah says, and this would have been like right before these kind of things take place. And as good Jewish men, they would have kind of known some of these things. So he says in Isaiah 43, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I mean, this is a beautiful kind of writing. God redeemed you. You're his. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Now, time out. Because see, some of you know what's about to happen in this story. And the temptation is to look at a verse like this and be like, yeah, of course, God had it the whole time. Which is great now that you're on this side of the story. It's much more difficult to do it when you're going through it. Remember, they've been in exile for 20 years. Some of y'all in this room, it's like two days and you're like, I give up. Like, I can't deal with it anymore, right? I mean, like, that's how fickle we are sometimes, right? 20 years, these guys have been going through this. In exile, everything comfortable and familiar to them has been stripped from them. And all that this guy is asking, who's actually been pretty good to them, actually probably, reality is, they're probably living a better life on his counsel than they may have ever lived before. It's just asking them to do one thing that they're not comfortable with. One thing that goes against what they believe. See, here's a temptation you may not have thought of. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar has been real good to them. And sometimes, like, we get these blinders on, and we're not allowed to talk about this, but let's just be honest. Sometimes we get this thinking of, like, well, what has God done for me lately? Right? You ever been there? Or, or you know, you're standing in front of the man that seems to have the upper hand, who holds your fate, your life, in his hands. God, you've been in exile for 20 years. See, in this moment, I think a lot of us would be tempted to give up, to bend just a little bit, maybe to fault. And, and here's the thing, who would even, who would even blame you? Because the temptation when it gets hard and the temptation when things aren't looking the way we hoped is to look at God and be like, I thought you would do this. I thought you'd be like this. 
when we're in a tough season, when we kind of look at a life or a faith that once was thriving and all now we see is some embers, the temptation might be to say, okay, but not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is, this is great. This next section is so loaded. So they look at the most powerful man in the world and they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, which is just like a baller line. Like, we don't even need, like, look, we know you're important. We know you got a lot of stuff to do. So we're not even going to waste your time with this. All right. We don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. Okay. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now, when I read this, I look at this and I'm like, okay, let's be honest. This is the type of faith that I want to have, right? Like this is the faith that we want. We want the faith that if we're facing the furnace, all right, we're facing the furnace, all right, we want the type of faith where we can just be like, you know what? We're good. We know for a fact that he is going to deliver us from this. And I like that idea until they speak next. And they really present the faith that I think that we need to have. So God, we go, okay? But even if he does not, So even if God doesn't do what we think he can do and what we hope he can do, even if he doesn't, see, it's easy for us to have faith when everything works out. It's easier for us to have faith when we got money in the checking account. It's easier for us to go have faith when the scans are coming back clean. It's easy for us to have faith when everybody's happy and healthy and we don't have to worry about this stuff. It's easy and we can believe because God is good. But even if he does not, even if you throw us in and we burn up right away, which is what everybody expected, we want you to know, your majesty, they're still being polite, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So what do you do when your faith isn't so strong? Or it feels like it's not strong? And what do you do when you're facing circumstances that you know can consume you? What do you do? Now, <clears throat> I'll be honest. I am tempted not to tell you how the story ends. And the reason I'm tempted not to tell you how the story ends is because for some of us, the default would be, well, of course, that's how it ended. It's a Bible story, all right? And, and, and so we're at this point where like there's this crux. I mean, this is like to me the crucial line of this whole story. God's going to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to do that. We know it's wrong. It's against who we are. We're not going to jeopardize who we are because of you. And, and, and so, um, but here's what I want to say, because I'll be honest. This next part is the part that's hard to believe, right? This is the part that's hard to grasp. This is the part that's hard to get our minds and our hearts around. But could you just believe for a moment that it's possible? That your faith and my faith can stand not only the trials, but the flames that we face. 
So King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, well, I, I can't go back on my word because I got all these people looking at me and I don't want to look like an idiot because control and power is my goal. And, and so he takes these guys, these guys that he likes, these guys that have been faithful to him for 20 years, and he goes and he builds the fire. And they said he builds this fire seven times hotter than usual because he's so mad that they're putting him in this situation. And they build this giant fire. And they say that it's so strong that even the soldiers that take them to the fire pit um, die because there's so much heat that they themselves die and they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And then it happens. It says in verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So they get thrown into the fire, and just like they believed, not a hair on their head is touched. And they come out of the fire. And do you know what happens next? They get promotions, right? <laughs> They do. They get job promotions. Like, you just defied the most powerful. Like, you go to work tomorrow and defy your boss and see if you get a promotion, right? Like, it's not. See, that's why I'm tempted not to tell you this story. But then it hit me. Maybe the reason that we struggle with stories like this is because we see God be faithful like he promised he was going to do the entire time. And the reason we want to dismiss it is because we know in our heart of hearts, the reason we don't experience God's deliverance in this way is because we never even give him the chance to do it. We're so wanting comfort that most of us have already jeopardized who we are. We so want to just fit in that we've already compromised who we are. We want power and control so much that, you know, if God hasn't done what we want in like two hours, I'm just taking over. And is it possible that the reason that some of us, me included, we struggle with stories like this and we have a hard time with the fact that somebody can be thrown into a fire and come out and God rescue them is because we've never experienced it. And the reason we've never experienced it is because whenever we face trials, we don't even give God the chance to do it. Some of us have never even faced a trial. We just want comfort. Or we ignore it. Or we pretend like it's not there. Or we're so hungry for power and control, we don't even ever have to get ourselves into situations. So do you think it's even possible that God could do this for you? And I think that's something we have to wrestle with. But I think there's another moment that we've already hit on that I, I think I want to end on, the bigger tension we need to wrestle with. Because see, the reality is, is, you know, it's not always going to turn out the way that you hoped, even if you have the faith. So about 10 years ago, my, my dad passed away and it was hard. It was one of the hardest things that I've ever gone through. Um, and, and, and there was this tension that I wrestled with because we prayed that he would get better. We believed that he would get better um, and all of these things. And we even had like moments where we thought he was going to get better and then he didn't. And so this verse, this idea of, as weird as it is in different circumstances, this idea of, do you believe it's possible that even if it doesn't go the way that you hoped, that God is still good? 
So if you ever come into our house, I had to steal it um, with my wife's permission. Uh, there's a sign that hangs in, in our, our kitchen, um, and this is all it says. And if not, he is still good. And it was this reminder that we have all of the time that even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't fix my microphone, <laughs> even if he doesn't, he's still good. See, I think it's an important point to note that when they're in the fire, the Bible says there's four of them. And it's a reminder to me of this idea that God doesn't promise he would always save us from every hardship. But he did say he would never leave us or forsake us. That he would be with us. And he was with them in the fire that day. The Psalm 23 is the most famous of the Psalms and it talks about as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we walk through all of these things. But the interesting line is the shepherding song and in that entire Psalm, the entire time, the shepherd is with them. And so God did promise that even when life feels like it's just embers barely hanging on and when it just feels like faith that's starting to go out and I know those seasons will come, he promises to be with us to get us through. And maybe for some of us, could we actually believe that that's enough? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for stories of men like these guys who, who stood up for what they believed and held on to their faith, even in tough circumstances. And God, give us the strength to have that same mindset when we all face different things and we will all face different things, different seasons and different hardships and different trials. Father God, I just pray that in all of this, we continue to, to be reminded, maybe like they were that day, in that still small voice of how you promised to be with us even through these things. And God, I pray that if somebody right now is going through something, in these next few minutes when we sing these songs, that they hear a word or a lyric or they connect with something that reminds them that you are a good God that can be trusted. And God, that you do promise us to be with us. And God, sometimes you even deliver us out of things that we didn't think we could be delivered from. But even if not, God, we know that you're good, that you're loving. And help us to continue to work through those things, those difficult seasons of life. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for everything that you are and all the grace, love, and mercy you give us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Every week we come to this time, we celebrate communion together. And around here, we just take a time during worship that when you're ready, uh, there's kind of stations around the room, if you haven't already grabbed it, where you take the, the emblems, the, the bread which represents his broken body and juice represents his blood. And we celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus, that he does walk through things with us and he never leaves us or forsakes us.